Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he went on his journey from south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar that he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Pretty cool passage, right? I mean, he's coming off a failure from the famine, a test. And what do you do? What do you do when you've had failure? What do you do when it didn't go the way you thought it would go? What do you do when things unraveled? Or what do you do when you're not sure what to do? Or you're not sure of anything? And that happens with all of us. You go back to the place of the beginning with the Lord. That's what you do. Later on in the book of Genesis, we're going to see this with Jacob as well. And Jacob's example is, has more details. It's pretty fascinating. And I would imagine when we get to that, I'm going to do a major study on a Saturday night from Jacob following a similar pattern. But here with Abram, as he's been introduced to us in the previous chapter, we now get a new chapter based on following his failure. Now, he has lots of wealth, but it would seem that there was a moral failure that happened there in Egypt. And what do you do when you have failure? Well, I always tell people, if you got the gift of life, you have today. And since his mercies are new every morning, we always go forward with the Lord. It's forward, onward, and upward with the Lord. I said recently, in walking with the Lord, failure is inevitable, but growth is optional. And if you can grow and learn from your failures, then you'll keep moving toward who you're meant to be in the Lord, in the integrity and the character and the transformation of the Holy Spirit in your life, to make you the best version of you possible to the glory of Jesus Christ, which is our purpose in this journey. That's the highest purpose that we can have in the human experience is to be the fullest version of us that Jesus Christ has meant us to be. That's the best gift we can give the world. That's the best gift we can give one another. That's the best gift we can give our enemies and those closest to us. Abram went back to the beginning. Now, in the book of Revelation of the seven churches of Asia, when Jesus is walking in the midst of the churches and he speaks to them and he says concerning the church of Ephesus, which had a, such a great start in the book of Acts and then received the letter to the Ephesians, which is amazing through the apostle Paul. Jesus said, you're an amazing church, but I have this against you that you've left your first love. Repent, therefore, and do the first fruits. And I have found in my own life, and I have found in observing other people's lives, so often in ministry, even as a pastor in over 30 years, when people come to you and they have different problems or whatever, you can almost always go back to some simple things. They've left their first love almost always as foundational. That relationship, they've maybe made their faith a religion or some type of thing that they do as opposed to something who they are through faith in Jesus Christ and believing in him and abiding in him. More often than not, you'll find that they're not reading the word of God on their own. They're not really praying at all. They're not in fellowship. It's not that hard. It's almost like being a doctor, especially at a large church like when we're on staff with Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa and people come in all day long, all day long to see pastors and you know, pretty much you get right to it. So which is it? Not spending time with the Lord, not spending time with his people. And it's almost always something like that. And Pride goes before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. And what we find is so often we fall on our face and it catches us off guard. 
or we feel that we're pretty good at managing our lives and managing these things and we can make the call and we've got a good plan. Abram's plan was a good plan for a famine that looked good on paper and he left Egypt with more, possibly more than he arrived with. It says he left with lots of stuff, gold and silver, but there was something there. And whenever that happens, it's always a reboot. It's like when something goes wrong with your electronics, more often than not, the best way to fix your electronics is just turn it off and reboot. My wife was the office administrator at Calvary for years, and when everything broke, the first thing they do is just turn it off and turn it back on. And more often than not, it would work. Even with Ryland, our, or one of our sound guys, I've had computer problems like, what is wrong with this? And he turns it off, completely turns it back on, and then it works. It's a reboot. That's what this is. When you lose your way, you go back to where you know it all begins. You go back to the altar. You go back to where God spoke to you. You go back to where you acknowledge the Lord in your life. You go back to being on your knees and in a quiet place, praying and seeking the Lord. You go back to reading the word of God verse by verse in your own life. You go back to writing in your personal journal what God's speaking to you. You go back to listening to Chuck Tapes or John Corson or whatever it might be, this podcast with Hector Moore, whatever it might be. You go back to all those things that build you up in your faith. And you go back to the basic foundations of your faith. Because it's the basic foundations of our faith that save us, the relationship with Christ. And it's the basic foundations of our faith that will seal us on the day of Christ Jesus. So, it's what you do. He went to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. The place of the altar they had made there at first. When you lose your way, you go back to the way. And you just reboot and you go forward. And maybe some of you are struggling in your way. Maybe some of you have come here tonight and there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of white noise and a lot of static. And you can't hear the frequency of the Lord. Well, the way you're going to hear the frequency of the Lord is to make time for the Lord. Maybe the finances are in disarray. Well, is Jesus Lord of the finances? Or are you Lord of the finances? Maybe you're day planner and your schedule seems out of control like it's just too many things coming at you well who's managing your time jesus or you there's always enough time to do what god wants to do in our life on a daily basis he gives it to us so if you've lost your way and you're overwhelmed go back to where the altar was at first go back to where you called upon the lord at first go back to that place it has served me well and it serves us well in the journey, we reboot and we reload, and we just remind ourselves it's about a relationship. It's about receiving and abiding, not about doing and manufacturing. It's about relationship and not religion. And it's about love, not legalism. Now we read on. Lot, who had went with Abram, verse 5, had flocks and herds and tents. The land was not able to support them that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdmen's of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. So they get back to the promised land and they get back to the place where God first spoke and where he said to be. Because he did say go to this land. He didn't tell them to go to Egypt. He said go to this land. So they get back to the land. And they're prospering. In their prosperity, both Lot, his nephew, and Abram are overflowing with livestock. And they're just, there's just not enough land. 
It's kind of like back in the 1800s, like the 1870s, 1890s, all the cattle ranchers and the, the cattle thieves and all that and the, and the Wild West and all that. Just, you get large herds and you need them to graze somewhere. And that's a form of wealth, particularly in an agricultural society like that. It represents wealth. There's not enough room for them. And, you know, sometimes we find in life there's just not enough room for two people to hang out together. We're not talking marriage, obviously, but we're talking about sometimes with family, extended family. There's agitation. Sometimes in ministry, there's agitation on staff with pastors. Many, many of the most fruitful Calvary chapels we know of came out of other Calvary chapels. We didn't have strife here when we planted OCCF with Brian Jamison or Hector Mora in Long Beach. Those are just wonderful church plants. But sometimes it's, you just say, hey, you know what? There's just... It's better. You go down here and we'll stay here, or you stay here and we'll go down there. I've been in that position in ministry. Both times in Virginia, I was in that position. In the first year, there's a lot of strife. I said, why don't we do this? Why don't you go here and take all these people and do that? Seemed like a good solution, but the Lord was not in it, and they didn't go for it, and they left the state in a week. But then a couple years later, when we left to Vermont, one of the reasons we went to Vermont is that there, there just it was, it was like just strife, and it was there. So you know what? You stay. You choose the left, and we'll go to the right. Or if you choose the right, we'll go to the left. And that was the best thing that we could do to preserve unity and have things go well. And good things came from that for everybody. It had it had a good thing. God was bigger than whatever it might seem. I know that Ray Bentley came out of Horizon Christian Fellowship with Mike McIntosh years ago. Did you know that? Lee Maranatha came out of Horizon. Jeff Mitchum, our good friend who established the church in Point Loma, he came out of Ray Bentley's church and planted that church in Point Loma. Miles McPherson, the globally renowned preacher down there in San Diego, he came out of Mike McIntosh's church there on, in uh, Horizon there in San Diego in Claremont. And sometimes you just, you know, you get, you get things, it's better, like you, it's better to say, you know what, you're better, you, you make that call. But when you get to that place, may I suggest very clearly and definitively to you, the best thing you can do is let the other person go first. Because the lot God will give you will always generally be better than what man will give you. It's better to say, you know what? The low road is always the best road. Now, we say the high road as in morally. In our culture, we say he took the high road. She took the high road. Well, really, in a biblical sense, that means they took the low road. They humbled themselves, and they said, you go first. After you, you're good. You know, and sometimes you have that. You have that in business. You have that in partnerships. I am telling you, you can never go wrong if you fully trust the Lord with your position and your possessions. And if the land needs to be split, it's much better to let the Holy Spirit split it than lawyers. Let me say that again. It is much better to let God be the one who divides the land and gives you a lot than to leave it to lawyers. And if you're a lawyer here, no offense intended. But it's just better. It's just better to say, you know what, you go and we'll go from there. And you say, what about my rights? You know, well, in a sense, we really surrender our rights when we surrender ourselves to the Lord. We've been talking about that quite a bit. But I've just found, like, it's better. It, and if there's an injustice against you, that's an investment in eternity. And I, occasionally I tell the story of the songwriter who came to me years ago, almost two decades ago, and he was really upset because he wrote a song. He was in a band with someone else, and he wrote a song. And there's someone else used portions of that song to make a new song, and that song became number one, and they became very famous and affluent off that song. And this particular band member felt like he'd been wronged, 
that he didn't get credit. And I, I remember I said to him, because at Calvary Costa Mesa this one day, I said, look, man, this is an incredible opportunity for you because think about this. Because he's saying, I can't even hear the song. I hear it on the radio all the time, and I'm just so upset. I'm like, no, 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 you got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. See, they're getting a reward, and God's opening doors of ministry for them. But for you, you get an even better reward because your reward is in eternity. And you really have two choices. You can defend yourself and try and get a lawyer and sue this record label and say, that's my song, and prove it, and be in a long, arduous battle, and what will you accomplish, and who will even remember it in five years? Or you can make it an offering to the Lord, and that's like money in the bank in heaven. I mean, you can have a number one hit on earth, or you can have a number one hit in heaven. Like, I would take the deposit in heaven, where thieving moth don't break in and destroy. And you know what was really cool? He got it. He got it. He received it. And that's one of my favorite stories from being on staff at Calvary Costa Mesa was the day that happened on that day when I was sought out by this person. This is a really good story. That's an offering to the Lord. You can't go wrong when you let someone else go first. It is others. And we're trusting Jesus Christ to raise us from the grave when we breathe our last. I think we can trust him to be our advocate and defense for the day-to-day affairs of the human experience. Because compared to raising us from the grave and bringing us into glory, what is to set things straight, give favor, disfavor, open doors, or close doors? That's where we see faith come into our own lives, where we see his handiwork. I really appreciate Abraham saying, you know what? You go. And you know, Abraham could say, dude, I'm your uncle. Everything you have is because you're in my afterglow. But he didn't say that. He's like, you know what? It's all good, Rob. Hey. Pastor Chuck, back in the day, was very much like that as well with Calvary Chapel and people that came and went. We pick it up in verse 10, and inspirational. And so we read that Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan that was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. And Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I'll make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent, went and dwelt by the terebinth tree of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. It's such a cool story. So Lot, he, he chose with his eyes. Well, it says, verse 10, Lot lifted his eyes, and he saw. And then it says there in farther on down, verse 11, then Lot chose for himself. These are the right words, by the way. These are good words to describe Lot. He saw, and he chose for himself. And then he pitched his tent toward Sodom, and eventually he would live in Sodom. And the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. In fact, so wicked and sinful, like the people of the pre-flood world, they're going to be completely wiped out by the Lord supernaturally. Like, that's pretty bad. Like, that doesn't happen very often in human history. That's really bad. Which just goes to show there's a way that seems right to a man or a woman, but the end thereby is death and destruction. Well, did Solomon say in Proverbs that we should trust in the Lord with all of our heart, lean not on our own understanding, acknowledge him in all of our ways, and let him direct our paths. Things are not always the way they appear. But one thing we can be sure of, bad company corrupts good morals. 
And if we're moving and trending toward worldly, carnal, evil things, it's probably not a good thing for us in the end. And that's what Lot was doing. He chose the beachfront property. He just didn't know it was going to get nuked from heaven. Abraham trusts in the Lord. As soon as Abraham said, you go first, what did God say to Abraham? It's all yours. <laughs> the north, the south, the east, and the west, everything's yours. So you trust in me? God is able to do exceedingly above and beyond all that we could think or ask in this church for his glory. Ephesians 3.20 tells us. You can't go wrong. Like Lot's like, oh, I want this, this house at Dana Point. And God's like to Abraham, you get all Southern California. It's all good. It's all yours. We're throwing Cayucas too. It's all, it's all yours, beachfront property, Morro Rock, you know, like whatever. Like, you see, like, the Lord is a blessing. God, he already said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and we can trust him. But the issues of the heart of being gracious and merciful, loving and forgiving, and really being gracious with people and trusting that the Lord has your back is so much more important than being vindicated. You know, after the Boxer Rebellion in 1901 to 1903 in China, when Hudson Taylor, the founder of the Inland China Mission, was near, the de- his second wife would die in 1904 and he would die in 1905. And so he's in his 60s, late 60s, and they lost uh, 60 missionaries in the Boxer Rebellion, counting children. So the Boxer Rebellion were just, they were like, they were precursors to the communists and they killed thousands of Christians all over China. And the Inland China Mission was thriving at its zenith. It was for, during his lifetime. And he wasn't there, he was actually in this, England at the time, and he emphatically emphasized that once the emperor dealt with the boxers and the reds and order was restored, that there could be no retaliation whatsoever coming from the Church of Jesus Christ and the Inland China mission against the evil that people brought against innocent people, the missionaries. Now, a number, a number of other missionary groups lost lots of people as well, and a lot of Chinese Christians were killed during the boxer rebellion that's the stuff that God honors and before he stepped into eternity in 1905 he went through every inland province of China all of them and they had a mission base in every single province which was the vision God gave him when he was a teenager in England in the 1850s so before he turned to his daughter-in-law adult daughter-in-law and breathed his last he saw the fruit and the fulfillment of all those promises. He let it go. He let it go. And those that followed him, the John and Betty Stams, and the others that came in subsequent decades, like Eric Little and all these people, learned to let it go. It's okay to let someone else choose before you because all the land is what God has for us. All the promises. And it's not... It's a test of faith to trust him. And we can always trust him. Abram, the father of our faith, knew that. So what we really should be focused on is walking in the land that's promised to us. Take a walk in heaven. Take a walk in the kingdom. See, God said, walk in the land. His wife has no children. He has no offspring. God says, everywhere your feet go on this dust, this dirt, as if every grain of dust could be a descendant, you couldn't count your descendants. I'll go for a walk. Step out in faith. See with your eyes of faith what you can't see with the eyes of time, space, and matter. Lot chose with the eyes of the temporal and did not see the destruction coming. Abraham trusted God and then went for a walk of faith to the north, 
the south, the east, and the west, and everywhere he went, by faith he had to see the coming generations, and they would come. And Israel's there today, and we're the spiritual descendants of Abraham, according to Galatians 3, as the church this night. To always trust in the Lord. We don't have to be first. Jesus is first, and then it's others. It's incredible. And he built an altar to the Lord, right? When, when it seems like you let your relative pick first and they took everything or what looked to be everything or the best lot, just build an altar. Just worship God, give it to the Lord. Chapter 14, we read on. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Iraq, king of Ilassar, Tetelamor, king of Elam, and Tetel, king of the nations, that they made war with Barak, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Sinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zobium, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, all these joined together in the valley of Sidim, that is the salt sea, what is now, of course, the Dead Sea. Twelve years they served Chedorlaomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer, and this Chedorlaomer is from modern Iran, so he's Persian, uh, forerunner of the Persians, modern Iranians, and that's where he's coming from, toward Israel. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer, verse five, and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephim, those are the mighty ones, in Ashtoreth, Carnium, the Zuzim in Am, the Enim in Shave, Kirathim, and the Horites in their mountains of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. This is all Israel, Jordan area, modern Israel, Jordan area. Then they turned back and came to En Meshap, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country, the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazizan Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zebedim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Sidium against Chedorlaomer, the king of Elam, Tidal, king of the nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. So before we read on from this story, we just have to reflect for a minute. As I said previously, things are not always the way they appear to be. It's just really wise to let the Lord help us make our decisions. We never know if we just think we got it all figured out and we feel as though we can sit back and tell the Lord this is the best choice. We're in a very dangerous place. We are very wise to say, Lord, you know what? This is the house we want, but you know if it's meant to be, you're going to open this door, you're going to close this door. Lord, we think this is the direction we're going. We're seeing confirmation but nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. If you want to close this door, close this door. His no is louder than yes, and his no's are favorable. His no's are always louder than his yes, and they're to protect us. You know, this generation, a lot of the millennials want a parent where they don't tell kids no. You don't say no. Like, God says no a lot in the Bible. Like, no to running on the freeway when you're a two-year-old, and not holding your grandparents' hands or something. You know, like, there's good no's. No's a really good thing. No, no protects you. Like, hey, don't drink the poison underneath the sink. No, you can't open that. Don't drink that. Like, there's a lot of really good no's. Like, no, don't get off the train at Land Country Safari and walk amongst the leopards or something. Like, I mean, there are a lot of no's, and no's are important. And if we just let God guide the way He'll show us yes or no or how to do something. When they came and took Lot, 
whatever he thought his life was about, his tent pitched. It's like the Garden of Eden. Man, he had the best lot. He didn't know the economy was going to crash. I mean, the economy really crashed. When Ted Omar shows up and you haven't paid taxes, and he's coming conquering, like Attila the Hun, or Hannibal, or Genghis Khan, or his descendants. I mean, they just come and take everything. They take people, they take possessions, they take everything. I mean, Lot had a life based upon what he saw was his best choice, but he didn't put the Lord first. And then, lo and behold, suddenly there's a war, and all that he had built up in one day, it's taken from him. Jesus talked about this when the man came and said, hey, Jesus, arbitrate me and my brother in the estate. And Jesus said, who made me an arbitrator? And he told the story like the man who said, I'll build bigger barns and bigger barns. A foolish man, tonight your soul will be required of you, and then who will get your stuff? And, of course, the book of Ecclesiastes goes into that in great detail. You save up all this wealth, you can't take it with you, and someone squanders it or steals it. And you can't sleep at night because you're worried about all the wealth, and who's going to take it from you because people are plotting to separate you from your wealth, which they do. You know, one day Lot went from, if you could compare Lot on the day Abraham said, you go first, and he looked and he chose, if he could have known that when Tetelaomar would come and take him away as a captive, he lost everything and his freedom. And that journey up the Jordan Valley, going toward Dan in the north and toward Syria, I can't even, like, what would you think if you were being taken under those circumstances? It'd be terrifying. This is the human experience of human history. And without faith in the living God, I just can't even imagine how previous civilizations and generations handled these things. But if you haven't lived by faith and you're being taken to captivity, man, that's a, that's a tough one on you. You might rethink your whole world, but honestly, with Lot, he didn't. That's a scary thing. Because we cry out for mercy and we cry out for deliverance. And sometimes God provides it. And yet we've seen as you go through the human experience and you get older and older, how many people do you see get delivered and still go back? They get the miracle deliverance and they, and they, they go back. Like you won the lottery once and you think you might win the lottery twice. We have to learn the lessons of our mistakes and failures. We have to. Or we'll just flatline in this human experience and we are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ and we need to be triumphant and growing and prospering. The Bible tells us the destruction of Mystery Babylon at the end of the age, it comes in one hour. Remember how fast 9-11 happened? How fast one day changed our lives? Remember the shock? Do you remember the shock of that one day of 9-11? No airplanes flying that night. Tanks rolling down the 15. All the trains going by Pendleton with all the weapons of war headed to the Middle East. Everything changed. One person tries to light his shoe, and now we all take our shoes off at the airport. It's amazing how one day can change everything. Our confidence needs to be in the Lord, who says, walk this land by faith, even when you don't see any of your descendants here. Look at Abraham in contrast, verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth tree, Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eshcol and brother of Abner, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, that is his relative Lot, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan, the city of Dan in the north. He divided his forces against them by night and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as 
Hobah, which is north of Damascus, modern Syria. So he brought back all the goods, also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Tidaleomar, the king's rule with him. So these kings got routed by Tidaleomar and his forces. Then Abram goes and rescues Lot, rescues everybody. It's like the raid on Entebbe, if you know your Jewish history. It's an incredible, incredibly successful raid to rescue these people. He rescues his own relative, and he rescues all the other people with him. It's incredible. Point out a couple things about Abraham here. That where he was living in the land, he built allies. That's interesting. Because, you know, if you study emergency preparedness in a community, one of the first things community plans will tell you is have a good network with your neighborhood. The Proverbs tell us brother is a friend next door than a brother in a distant land. We want to build relationships. We want to build friendships. We want to, not because of an agenda, but it's better to make friends than make enemies. You get more with sugar than vinegar, as my mom used to say in the 60s. The Proverbs say better is a friend that's a neighbor that's near than a brother far away. And as we invest in people, as we sow relationships, as we love on people, as we help people and serve people, then it's reciprocated and, and people are there nearby to help you. I love how Abram was building relationships with the right kind of people. Don't miss this. Abram was building relationships with the right kind of people while Lot was pitching his tent with evil people. And Abraham prepared a standing army. This, like, this is a crack force of military skill, certainly outnumbered, but well-trained and very capable of executing the mission. These men were under the leadership of the father of faith, they were ready when the battle came, and they were courageous in the battle. Now, doesn't that tell us a lot? God's looking for women and men, young and old, who are ready for the opportunities that God has for them and are courageous to embrace those opportunities that God has for them. We can overthink anything and talk ourselves out of it, but it's always the right time to do the right thing, and we generally know what the right thing is. And sometimes we need to speak up, and sometimes we need to take a stand, and sometimes we don't, and we let it go, because it's not our battle. But when we know that we know we need to go for it, and we need to take risk, and we need to be prepared when that moment comes when our faith is stretched, that we have the faith. We're not looking for the faith. We've built the faith. They were ready. He wasn't kicking it in cruise control in the valley of Sodom with the wicked people. He was building relationships with his neighbors, and he was preparing himself for whatever life might bring his way. And when life brought a storm and a test and a true battle, he was ready for it, not just in preparation to, to preserve himself, but to actually rescue others who had put themselves in a bad situation to begin with by who they chose to hang out with and what they chose to do. Abraham's a hero. And of course, Sarah is involved with this because she kisses her husband goodbye as he goes off to a commando raid in the north. It's very impressive, and it was very successful. Now, we read on. 
verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, the God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe, or that is one-tenth of all. That is, Abraham gave him one-tenth of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten, the portion of the men who left went with me, an heir, Askel, and memory. Let them take their portion. This is, an, this is really cool right here, this passage, for a number of reasons. It's, it's giving and taking. It shows us what Abram will give, and it shows us what he won't take. And yet, by his own convictions and standards that he has with his faith in the living God and his discernment of how things can play out, he's like playing a chess game. He's way ahead of the game. You see, some people only see what's in front of them. Some people see ahead, and some people see around the corner. And some people are actually lapping us or lapping you or you're lapping me. Abram had vision and foresight. But even in the midst of that, where he had his own strong convictions of his faith, of what was acceptable for him, for his witness in his community with his neighbors, he was sensitive enough to not force his convictions on those who were his neighbors that went with him and respected their right to have their own convictions about what they would receive or not receive from the kings of Sodom with the plunder. I think that's really cool. That shows a lot of, that shows a lot of character and integrity for his own convictions and his own faith while also recognizing and respecting the decisions and choices and self-determination of other people who took risk as well. He's not forcing his religion or faith, if you will, on his neighbors. He's going to make their own choices what they want to do because they took the risk, and if they want to receive the wealth, good for them. But as for Abram, this is my conviction. It's kind of like the Olympics with Eric Little in 1924 in Paris. Of course, he was the British, at, British runner who is well-known from trades of fire, Picture of the Year, Academy Awards, 1980. Eric Little, the missionary, the runner. But it was his conviction that he would not run on a Sunday. That's how believers were back then with the Sabbath, if you will. And he's not going to run. They pressured him with the queen herself to run in the 1924 Olympics for England in the 100-yard dash on a Sunday. And he would not do it. He had the convictions of a certain, he came from a missionary family from China, and they just, that's how they felt about it. They weren't Seventh-day Adventists or anything like that. They just felt strongly that you honor the Lord that way. And if you've never watched Chariots of Fire, it's certainly worth your time to watch it. One of the best movies ever. And that was his conviction. But Harold Abrams was Jewish, and his conviction was to run. So he ran, he was British, he ran, and he won. Of course, the famous story of Chariots of Fire is Eric Little ran the 200, which is a much different kind of race if you know anything about track and field. And he was not even favored to make the finals, and he won the 200. He won the goal for uh, Her Majesty the Queen. God, you know, God and country. And then he let that all go and went to serve the Lord in China as a missionary, and he died in a Japanese internment camp of a brain tumor. Incredible story, Eric Little. One of the most inspiring stories of any athletes in the last 100 years, for sure. But it's important that we have our convictions and we know what those convictions are, that we know the boundaries of those convictions, 
and we know what, we're, what those convictions mean based upon God's word, and to be true to our convictions through our faith in the Lord. And it's important to recognize that not everybody has the same convictions and to respect those things because there is a choice there and a self-determination. And that's what you see with Abram here and how this was. I just love how he saw the trap or the potential for the kings of Sodom to say, well, we made Abram rich. Because Abram had already been promised everything's going to be his. And he's already got wealth. And so he's like, you know what? We're not going to accept that offering from the king of Sodom. <laughs> I mean, as Pastor Chuck tells a story back in the day when they needed a million dollars for part of the building project over there at 3800 South Fairview Avenue, they were praying for a million dollars. And a guy came to him and gave him a million dollar check. And Chuck, when Chuck tells his story, he's like, whoopee, yippee. God, you're so good. And then God told him, don't take that check. It's a famous Chuck story. Guys, they don't take the check. Oh, no. You know, the poor Protestant minister for 20 years and all those small churches all over the, the country and, you know, just getting by and working at Safeway with a full-time job as well. And, you know, the, the, the seven-digit check finally comes through, first one ever, and God says, no, no. That's, we didn't take it. God will not share his glory with man. God's glory is his glory. And there are gifts we can receive, and there are gifts we cannot receive because they're not really gifts. They have a string attached to them that might compromise our witness, our integrity, our character, and our calling in the world. But what's fascinating to me is this closing thought as we shift gears toward communion is Melchizedek, the king of Salem. and the, He's the king of peace and the king of righteousness, 2,000 years before Christ came, this king appears to Abram after the, the victory of Chedorlaomer, And Abram recognizes him as one superior to himself. For Abram gave him a tithe of what he had. That is a tenth. Now, we're told 1,000 years later through King David that there's a future coming with the Messiah who is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek's a priest and a king. He's a priest. But he's not the priest of Israel, because this is 400 years, 500 years before Israel existed as a nation, or what's known as the Levitical priesthood that God gave Israel back at Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. He's just his own priest. Salem, of course, is Jerusalem. So he's the prince and the king of Salem. And he comes out with bread and wine, the elements of communion. And Abram acknowledges him as one superior, and gives him a tenth, gives him a tithe. And we're told a thousand years later by the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Then we're told a thousand years after that, when, after Christ came in the book of Hebrews, that, Mel, that Jesus is the priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He's not a priest according to the tribe of Levi with the Jews in the Old Testament. But his priesthood is superior Melchizedek has no genealogy. We don't know where he came from or where he ended. He's a type of Christ, or he's what we call a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. He, it's one or the other. But he comes with the elements of communion to the father of faith, Abraham, upon a great victory where he was protected and prospered. And Abram acknowledges that Melchizedek is a superior order above him. We're told in Hebrews again that the lesser always pays homage to the greater. 
Melchizedek is greater than Abram. And Jesus is the fulfillment of Melchizedek in dying on the cross and rising from the graves for our sins. It's an amazing story of Melchizedek, a mysterious story of Melchizedek. What we know is this. Abraham recognized the victory was the Lord's and he gave this tithe. And then... He said, I'm not going to receive anything. So he tied to the one who's superior and he refused to accept the gifts of the one who was inferior, the king of Sodom. And he said something very interesting. He said, I'm not going to let you say that you made me rich because only God has given me my blessings. In other words, he's saying everything I have is because the Lord has given to me. It is all the Lord's that I have. You'll never say that you blessed Abram. God has blessed Abram. Abram's a blessed man. In the commissioning of Abram, I will bless you and you will be a blessing to others. I will make your name great. We read that. And Abram says here, the two stories go together, Melchizedek and the king of Sodom. What opposites? Melchizedek, a type of Christ, the king of Sodom, total destruction under the wrath of God. And he pays homage and tithe here, and then he tells the other one, I'm not taking anything from you. He gives to the one, and then he says, I'm not taking anything from you because all that I have is the Lord's which is the secret or the foundation of truly being sold out to the Lord. It's never about like paying a tax to the Lord, but everything we have is the Lord's. And the sooner we recognize in the journey of life, our health, our afflictions, our trials, our tribulations, a man or woman can receive nothing else that it comes from the Lord. So all the temporal blessings are from the Lord. The temporal trials and tribulations are from the Lord. They serve a purpose to make us like Christ for all eternity. Everything we have is from the Lord. If you have great health, rejoice in the Lord. If you have bad health, rejoice in the Lord because he's in the, the bad health with you and he's greater than it. If you have financial prosperity, rejoice in the Lord and acknowledge him in all things. If you're in de despair financially, let the Lord know and recognize that he's got that. Paul said, I've learned to abound and to abase, and I've learned I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What a contrast, Abram with Melchizedek. Here's the tenth, and here's the communion with the everlasting priesthood, symbolically representative of Jesus Christ, right there. The communion elements. But the king of Sodom is like, we don't depend upon the world. Our God is the one who blesses us, and our God is the one who gets glory from our life. It's great insight in WG. It's about the relationship and the communion. And we see that God will protect us. He'll honor our right decisions. We can never go wrong trusting him with everything that we have. And he's got our back. He'll provide for us. And we just keep him first in all things. And it'll all be done before you know it. This whole journey is going to be done before you know it. My father-in-law turns 89 tomorrow. When I met him, he wasn't 89. My dad's 89. We just had time. We're just passing through. This is our time to live by faith and make the distinction between breaking bread with the priest Melchizedek or receiving wealth from Sodom. Be wise and discerning and trust the Lord with everything.